out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Hi, this is Sheila Dean with That AI Show and the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. We are running a July promotion to get as many Substack followers as humanly possible to subscribe at SheilaMDean.Substack.com. Please go to the website and hit subscribe uh, for a goal of 500 subscriptions. So far, so good. So that's Liberty in Many Directions, SheilaMDean.Substack.com. So what do you get? What's in it for you? You get podcast content aired specifically on Colin.com from That AI Show, a Saturday show on AI subject matter with conversation, and the Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives, as well as specific writings from yours truly. So go ahead, uh, get on board and promote. If you like the stuff that you're hearing and perceiving and reading, Go ahead and try to get at least three to five friends or a hundred friends if you want to uh, buy in and subscribe. This is the month to do it. Time is ticking. Let's go. Welcome to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. We're still continuing our summer reading series to unsanction your mind. I did a seven-minute monologue midweek, which is kind of like these, this kind of unbridled conscious moment where I'm like telling everybody to kind of, no, not kind of, just, just understand that speech is free, so it's only seven minutes, I, you know, listen to it and throw it out there kind of wanted to assert that because speech is free I just don't think people really understand that anymore because they're being subtly brainwashed that speech isn't free but it really is so I'm urging people to adopt the idea that that actually legally speech is free um, what people want to do to you because of the speeches you speak that's a totally different object totally different legal object all right again we are uh, here to read The Bodies of Others, Chapter 12, and this is The Tech Bubble, Vast Wealth Via Killing Human Competition. And this is the tome written by Ms. Naomi Wolf, feminist author and luminary, um, who, wrote, who wrote The Bodies of Others. Okay, here I go. Even as the near-universal masking continued to sow division... It further served big tech and the leadership in China by training the population in obedience and accustoming people to surrender both their human capital and their assets. In short, the world of tech used governments as their handmaidens to wage a war of restrictions against the human race. The result of this was both profits and damage nearly beyond human imagining. Now, via mask mandates... Brilliantly, and at a stroke, big tech had created a world that neutered the power and appeal, the complexity and communicativeness of the miraculous human face. It had achieved a world that blunted the advantage of the lively, curious human face against those 
less subtle or responsive. In substituting the emotions generated by machines for those of humans, big tech had built a cruder world lacking in deeper understanding that depends on expression, nuance, speech, and breathing. Intentionally or not, the lockdown policies had worked to blunt the human advantage, not just in the short term, but also deeply into the future. By limiting children's opportunities to play, let me read that again. By limiting children's opportunities to play and by restricting their capacity to see faces and interact socially by keeping them from school and teaching them to shy away from touch, the 2049 generation had paid a disastrous price in the form of the loss of both human and Western, Western legacies. Indeed, by the end of 2021, after two mass years, a study conducted by researchers at Brown University and Rhode Island Hospital reported that the mean IQ score for children born during the pandemic was over 20 points lower than the average of prior generations. Reduced interaction, missed educational opportunities, and lost opportunities for creative play all served to impact child neurodevelopment. And as the study's authors concluded, we find that children born during the pandemic have significantly reduced verbal, motor, and overall cognitive performance compared to children born pre-pandemic. <clears throat> Moreover, we find that males and children in lower socioeconomic families have been most, most affected. Results highlight that even in the absence of direct SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19 illness, the environmental changes associated COVID-19 pandemic is significantly and negatively affecting infant and child development. I spent almost a decade in the tech space and seven years as the CEO of a tech company building digital products. I saw firsthand how for tech companies, human society is the competitor against which it is vital to strategize. From Facebook to Twitter to Salesforce to Microsoft Teams to Zoom, most digital platforms seek to persuade people to stop doing something IRL or in real life and instead do it on the digital platform. It is their business model. They are in the business of targeting private community-based human time and space. While this has always been so pre-2020, humans did most things together. When we worshiped in church, when our children were in a classroom, when we attended a town hall meeting, no data was being generated. Tech companies saw themselves as losing money every time humans gather in a humane analog spaces. This is the reason why a favorite buzzword in the tech CEO circles is disruptive. The primary thing every digital company wants to disrupt is human society from which they are not profiting. The more that tech platforms and policies are able to shut down human community and restrict the freedom of humans, the wealthier big tech corporations seem to become. The goal of almost all tech companies is to gather either eyeballs, allowing the tech company to sell advertising or data, whereby they harvest every keystroke you generate on the site and sell that information to advertisers, insurance agencies, marketers, hospital chains, and so on. This unseen market of data purchasing and data warehousing is vast, almost beyond imagining. The business model for Zoom, which has servers based in China, is your data and your attention. The lack of security 
of Zoom and other similar platforms was the reason that the renowned cybersecurity expert Stephen Waterhouse referred to the lockdown of 2020 as a hack of the intellectual property and data of the West. The business model for Nintendo is your attention, your eyeballs. The business model for Microsoft is your data, subscriptions to its software, and your attention, eyeballs. The business model for Microsoft Teams is a subscription. The business model for Microsoft's educational offerings is data and license sales of the software to school districts. All these business models gain massive advantages via the suppression of human community and free assembly during the pandemic. While the pandemic edicts had no science behind them from the tech CEO perspective, they ensured that humans with virtually no analog slash humane space or culture left, no way to feel comfortable simply gathering in a room, touching one another as friends or allies or joining together, were almost wholly reliant on digital technology, driving all human interaction human interaction onto Zoom and others not always secure platforms was not only a way to harvest all of our data, it was a way to ensure as face-to-face human connection withered and died that what passes for intimacy and connection in the future will increasingly be online. So it was as if the world had been redesigned by Klaus Schwab in the promotion of the Great Reset. Culture is the great source of strength and fortitude of the human species. But after a year of no worship, no Passover, no Christmas, no school, no Boy Scouts, no Girl Scouts, no prom, no Neapolitan chit-chat with pizza vendors, no New York chit-chat with hot dog vendors, no new openings on Broadway, no galas, no jazz groups improvising, no humans actually meeting unexpectedly, there was nothing to write or sing about, nothing to remember, no history to tell our kids, and the kids hardly even knew there was a world outside of their rooms. Culture requires human contact to replicate and develop. And when you isolate humans and don't educate or socialize kids, then culture dies to be readily replaced by online or CDC or CCP directives. Meanwhile, forbidding assembly kept us from forming human alliances against those monstrous interests. In a world marked by great uncertainty and volatility, Schwab remarked in 2017, in introducing the brutal Xi Jinping, whom he regularly features as a model leader, the international community is looking up to China to continue its responsive and responsible leadership. Little wonder that such Schwab allies and Confederates such as New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, a WEF Young Global Leaders alumna, and Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, half of whose cabinet Schwab once boasted were WEF alumni, World Economic Forum, that's what that stands for, would align with tech companies to crack down on free thought and human assembly. Forbidding human assembly has the effect and the intent of preventing new cultures and new business models from arising. By early 2022, We were all still basically stuck with the connections and ideas that we had in March of 2019. Forcing kids to distance at school and wear masks ensured a generation of Americans who don't know how to form human alliances, indeed don't trust their own human instincts, while driving all learning onto distance platforms 
ensure that kids would not know how to behave in human spaces, which are not mediated by technology. Those are counter-revolutionary training techniques. In the pre-masking, pre-2020 past, human connection was the norm. People had new and surprising experiences as a matter of course, enriching their own base of understanding and knowledge. Train travel and plane travel mixed up left and right, African-American and Caucasian, rich and poor, techies and journalists, farmers and teachers. The beauty of public spaces where public can breathe and talk unhindered is that they break up encapsulated social and democratic networks. Ideas and knowledge brush up against each other. Cultures merge and new businesses, new ideas, new alliances, and organic new histories are created. But when that human technology of public space with breath and speech intact is broken and mask and distancing broke and disabled it entirely, people are reduced to machine algorithms for understanding their worlds. Progressives were fed only progressive ideas by an algorithm on their social media. They never bumped into a conservative with whom they could speak easily on a train, at church, or on a plane. Conservatives were fed only conservative ideas. They could never sit for five hours next to someone they liked with whom they enjoyed speaking, but who would also challenge their ideas. We became even more divided and managed culturally by digital ghosts, by shadows, by codes. Anything could be said about the other side. And we were at risk of believing it because masking ensured that those chance stray conversations that continually educate and surprise free humans and which constantly undermine tendentious propaganda and ideologies could not happen. Indeed, what could be more dangerous to a democratic nation's health than forcing upon its children an extended tutorial on the need for absolute and unquestioning compliance to authority, even when the commands make no logical or ethical sense? Why develop policies that punish, encumber, and restrict human contact in humane analog, unsurveilled, unmediated spaces? Because human contact is a great revolutionary force underlining human freedom. We are relentlessly encouraged by tech companies to think of their technology as enabling human processes, making human actions more efficient, do your bookkeeping better, find a restaurant more easily, take, talk to a loved one far away. In fact, the business models of most tech giants and especially social media giants most thrive when they have replaced human experience and human actions. And now they have moved on to suppressing human experience and human actions. Amazon wants to persuade you that it is not fun or worthwhile for you to go to your local supermarket or to window shop in the mom and pop shops on Main Street. Amazon is competing with the pleasure you get from chatting with a checkout clerk or the unexpected treat of bumping into a neighbor in the supermarket aisle. And even with the small mood boost you get from dreamily gazing at a pile of scarlet mangoes or green avocados, and the sensory inputs you receive from picking up the fragrant mango to inhale the scent or running a finger along the rough, smooth avocado to check its ripeness. In 2019, Amazon's revenues were 
$1.52 billion. And by the end of its first lockdown year, Amazon's revenue was up to $105.4 billion. Indeed, from 2020 to 2022, the massive realignment in wealth and investment that took place left the biggest five companies in the world, say one Saudi energy company, as tech companies are all worth more than $1 trillion. And there's a graph here, but I'm not able to translate it, so I'll have to keep going. Etsy and Craigslist are competing with the excitement of country drives to a, a real garage sale and auction. And with the pleasure you get from touching old wood or admiring the shading of paint in real paintings. They compete with the pleasure of attending physical auctions and the excitement you might get from outbidding other humans in a room. Etsy's business press speaks openly about the boom it, in profits it sustained as a result of lockdown. People had to run or turn to Etsy over the past year, the company guided revenue growth of about 10% year over year for the fourth quarter, between 660 million and 690 million. People flocked to the site to buy pandemic essentials like face masks. The whole conversation since then has been once the world reopens, how much of that will you lose? How much of that will you give up? And that was a fair thing to ask, the CEO Josh Silverman said. The business press is open about how lockdown policies drove certain sectors' profits. Etsy's revenue in, the, in 2019 was $818.79 million. And by the end of the first lockdown year, it was up to $1.725 billion. Etsy was in the first billion-dollar Silicon Valley club. Its revenues had more than doubled let's see here, in a year. Etsy's initial business model was to offer cute, original handmade or eclectic goods that small business owners and craftspeople traditionally offer in little shops. But when you kill off all the little shops, those small craftspeople and one-woman boutique owners have nowhere else to transact than Etsy. A lockdown in which small boutiques must, must close makes $906 million win for you and your shareholders in one year. Nintendo competes with real bowling leagues and real baseball games, real hiking clubs, real poker tournaments, real billiard halls. Nintendo's sales were $9.96 billion in 2018 and $10.91 billion in 2019, $12.12 .12 billion in lockdown 2020, and $15.99 billion in masked distanced 2021. A high that the company had not been able to attain since 2010. The lockdown years brought Nintendo quite literally billions of dollars in new revenue. Look what happened to Nintendo during the two years your child was prevented from being maskless on a sports team, hanging out with friends, unmasked at school, or in any way playing normally with peers, forbidden to play with cards, puzzles, hockey sticks, basketballs, pool tables, ice skates, soccer balls or footballs to play any other sport or game with friends unmasked. Lockdown in which children were especially targeted and forcibly masked saved Nintendo as a moneymaker for its shareholders. The end of the second lockdown year, a year in which kids desperate to breathe left the blanked out muffled faces of their peers with whom they could have no fun whatsoever to flee for relief to their rooms so they could breathe freely.
and numb their loneliness with a video game. What happened to Nintendo sales then? The company was up another third of its former total and was racing profitably away from a mid-2010 slump. What about Apple? When your kids couldn't talk to their friends in person, when no one could easily talk to anyone in person, we all took out our phones. And for hundreds of millions of us, it wasn't an iPhone. Look at Apple. A vast spike showed in the first quarter of lockdown with all of 2021, nearly double Q3 of 2019 and Q1 of 2022, more than triple Q3 of 2019. I remember standing masked in a hotel, waiting for an elevator next to another masked woman. Under ordinary conditions, we would have smiled, chatted, and shared some small talk in the elevator about what shows to see at what museums or about great restaurants nearby. She smiled with her eyes, I smiled with my eyes. And of course, since it was going to be awkward in the elevator now, we both took out our phones. That moment, reproduced around the world, for two years led to the doubling, in some cases tripling, of income for some tech companies. So lockdowns and masking made the whole world and all of human interaction an awkward moment in which you reach for your phone. As CNBC reported over the past year, Apple and Microsoft got within arm's reach of a $3 trillion market cap, while Facebook parent company Meta both reached the $1 trillion milestone for the first time. This is what happened to Microsoft's net income during the two years that everyone was forced indoors and children were kept home from school. Just before the pandemic, its net income was $39.24 billion. What it was after two years of lockdown, after local and federal governments around the world were forced onto Microsoft Teams to deliberate, when almost no one would visit a human physical office, and Microsoft Education offered webinars for helpless teachers forced to communicate with each other online. Microsoft's net income went from $39.24 billion to $61.27 billion in two years. Shutting your child inside and closing down every human society reaped an increase in annual net income of over $22 billion. And Google? When people are forced indoors and can't ask for directions from other humans for a restaurant or car wash recommendations, can't go to town halls to find out what's happening in their communities, and can't ask humans for recipes or hear new jokes. And when people across the nation have to sign into Google to get the results from COVID tests that they took at Rite Aid, well, you can see what happens. Educational software, I had known the space of distance learning since I analyzed it on behalf of Bernard College's Athena Center for Women in Leadership in 2015. I had also researched creating virtual classes for my own tech company, Daily Clout IO. In indeed, a truism of the virtual university field before the pandemic was that it was difficult to earn substantial money from educational platforms since human students so preferred being in human classrooms with human peers and teachers. My report in 2015 concluded that Bernard College should not bother with existing distance learning options as they were unpopular with students and faculty and they did not yield revenues. Coursera, the model distance learning company, was my object lesson. Coursera was not that profitable then. The company stayed massively unprofitable, but the pandemic boosted growth. 
Revenue in 2020 increased 59% over the prior year. Because the Coursera management were geniuses? No. Because millions of students around the world could no longer go to university or college. The lockdown made this multi-million dollar loser ripe for a staggering valuation on IBO, IPO. According to its SEC filings, its 2020 revenue was $294 million. Its workforce more than doubled, and it kept expanding overseas. Its 77 million learners come from 190 countries, reported Forbes.com. The company, which benefited from the fact that people were forced to stay indoors and universities were forced to close, went public in March of 2021. Its final pre-IPO valuation stood at $3.6 billion. It's now worth nearly $7 billion, reports Forbes. So how is distance learning growing so fast? Better question, why did so many schools and universities send their students home when children are at almost no risk for serious outcomes from COVID-19 and young adults are at little risk? Many parents rightfully and desperately wondered exactly this. The reason in many cases that schools and universities promoted distance learning and that is what they were paid to do. Coursera paid $281 million to its 200 university and industry partners to close its $294 million in revenue. Usually, it is the customers that pay for the software, but not in this model. The universities treat content and they get paid by Coursera per student, which incentivizes colleges and universities to create hybrid learning programs and not just let young adults be humanly present with no extra royalties coming in in school or on campus. Given a choice, most students, of course, would have preferred in-person learning to being forced to learn online, but they were not given a choice. Given those kinds of numbers and the deals being done between distance learning platforms and universities, the phrase hybrid learning is going to hound us into the future, pandemic or not. It is unlikely that schools or universities will ever escape the much-promoted hybrid model Unless there's more, unless there's a citizen and student revolt, so much money is low-hanging fruit for big tech. If only your child can continue to be kept away from the school lab and sports field and drama club, her friends and her teachers, and shut away safely in her room. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, and Facebook added a combined $2.9 trillion to their collective market caps in 2021, according to data from FactSet. At the end of 2020, Apple was up 30%, Microsoft was up 50%, Alphabet, Google's parent company, was up 65%, Amazon was up 6%, Meta, Facebook, was up 20%. This dizzying boom indeed began to slow in Q1 of 2022 when people in many American states began in earnest to return to normal life and a movement finally pushed back against restrictions. Policies issued by governors, policed by social media sites with conflicts of interest, and enforced by bought-off universities had overnight killed off much of the competition of human-to-human learning and left devastatingly maimed the beautiful classroom of the old order. A letter. On July 7th of 2021, I posted a video of Brian reading aloud Dr. Ralph's, Dr. Ralph Barry's CV. 
a University of North Carolina researcher, Dr. Barrick, had received millions of dollars in gain-of-function research funding from the NIH. I penned the resume itself as well. Within 24 hours, the video had 70,000 views. A day later, in another hotel room, I read a video of a press release by State Senator Kim Thatcher of Oregon, who would call for an investigation into the misrepresentation of data by the CDC. As I sought to post the press release, Twitter showed me that my account had been suspended. We were now in the midst of a great swath of censorship and cancellations by big tech. President Trump had been kicked off of Twitter. Ben Shapiro warned that CNN was censoring conservatives. LinkedIn censored the Harvard epidemiologist slash hero, Dr. Martin Koldor, and on and on. Big tech was deplatforming anyone who raised questions about the mRNA vaccines. And big tech was deplatforming conservatives apace. I had been suspended by Twitter temporarily twice before, so I assumed that they would relent eventually, and I went to bed. In the morning, I saw that news outlets across the English-speaking world had been attacking me with bizarre distortions of my Twitter feed. It was notably interesting that tweets I had deleted immediately for having been poorly phrased, tweets that literally did not exist, had been provided to journalists. In addition, tweets that were quotes from websites or obvious metaphors were presented out of context to make me sound deranged. I had quoted, for instance, that the Moderna's website metaphor about the software of life in a tweet and responded with a metaphor, and yet I was accused in the wave of attacks of believing <coughs> that the vaccines were literally software. I had penned an FDA white paper that examined the possible effect of spike protein in wastewater, and I satirized what was fast becoming a vaccine-based segregation by joking about separating vaccinated and unvaccinated people's wastewater. This was presented as my advocating to separate the waste of these two groups. I had posted a tweet with an image of a teddy bear, which had been aimed at luring parents to vaccinate their kids, and reporters claimed that I believe teddy bears should be vaccinated. These news outlets, many of which over the course of decades had, had commissioned me to write for them, did not contact me to check for accuracy for a quote, or for my point of view. The New Republic, which was still even at that moment syndicating my work, ran a headline, The Madness of Naomi Wolf. I was interviewed by the Sunday Times of London, for whom I had written for years. Indeed, I had been a columnist. The young reporter, with her talking points in hand, asked me about my purported beliefs in QAnon. It was stunning to watch a full-on digitally enhanced smear campaign unfold in real time. Journalism had changed. It was impossible to get corrections. Editors seemed cowed and helpless. It was not surprising that journalism had so dramatically changed. Tim Schwab, writing in the Columbia Journalism Review, scrutinized the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and found $250 million going to media outlets, including BBC, The Atlantic, NBC, and The Guardian. Around the world, 
Headlines declared that I had been deplatformed from Twitter for spreading medical misinformation or vaccine myths. Soon after, Facebook suspended my account with its 134,000 followers. YouTube suspended my account with its 440,000 video views. These suspensions were crippling blows to my digital reach-based company. Some investors in my company asked for their money back. Now I was shifted rudely over to a whole new life status. I had been secure member of the influential chattering class circles in New York and Washington. Now, like the dissident doctors, dissident scientists, and the very few dissident journalists, I was stripped of income and reputation, friend groups, and status. And in some ways, I had to start over. I couldn't complain to my senator. Facebook had donated $50,000 to his campaign. Arriving at the train station in Washington, D.C. in 2021, I got into a mass driver taxi. Having spent five hours on the Acela from New York City in a train filled with the elite high-level business people and political employees, all thoroughly masked and attached to their screens rather than reading or chatting or talking on the phone, I was eager for human connection. I told the, the driver I didn't care if he wore a mask. He indicated miserably that it, he must. He spoke about how he and other cab drivers were barely surviving with so many federal employees working from home. Usually I would chat with the driver about what is happening in his home country, Ethiopia in this case, and thus get valuable secondhand access to eyewitness accounts of events in other parts of the world. And when I asked, I turned and offer information that I had. I was usually asked about access to affordable universities for kids. But now that wasn't possible. After a few muffled efforts, we gave up and each concentrated on breathing. So I didn't know what was happening in Ethiopia from his perspective that day. And my driver didn't find out if I might have helped his kids into an affordable college. By the time I went back to New York City in January of 2021, there were far fewer yellow cabs than I had remembered. That industry, a cabbie told me, had been killed by lockdown. In its place were Ubers and Lyfts, which don't give the driver the valuable equity or chance for independence that a medallion system does. These app-based companies not incidentally track both drivers and passengers, creating a social credit system based on how you treat each other. A goal of the tech elites is to create smart cities, which almost no one but they wish to have. In these reimagined cities, your every action is mapped in a digital matrix. By the time I went back to New York City, the human information clerks had been cleared out of the suburbs, subways and the paper maps had been removed. You had to consult your phone and generate data and geolocation just to find out where you were supposed to go. Now there were QR codes in every restaurant, so no one would touch the journey paper menus. Customers did not realize, perhaps no longer cared, that each time they did so they could have been geolocated and potentially connected to the others at the table swiping their code. I sat at a restaurant with a loved one. Can I have a paper menu? I asked the waitress. Why? My loved one inquired, happily scanning his phone to the QR code. Because the QR code can scan your data and geolocation, he replied. 
Oh my god, Naomi, does everything have to be a conspiracy? Said my loved one. I am like this woman. I am like Naomi Wolf. I'm exactly like Naomi Wolf in that way. So that's the chapter. I'm going to try to invite some people. I'm just going to invite all these folks. See if anybody wants to come in and talk. So that ended the chapter reading portion of the Unsanctioned Citizen podcast uh, for today. I just wanted to remind listeners that are listening on other platforms like Podomatic or RSS.com that they can tune in to Colin.com for the live set and then catch some of the repartee, the involved, engaged talkers who want to comment on the listening content. So uh, we broadcast initially at callin.com as the unsanctioned citizen. So catch us and follow us there. Uh, we will be reading again tonight uh, chapter 13 of the bodies of others. So uh, be looking out for that as well. That about wraps it. Thank you for listening. Uh, join us again uh, on this listening station, wherever it is. Um, and we appreciate you wherever you are. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com. <laughs>